Is this frequency in use? Welcome to Southgate Vibes, a selection of the latest stories direct from Southgate Amateur Radio News. I'm Steve Richards, Golf 4 Hotel Papa Echo, and in this podcast, you're going to hear my personal picks of what is happening in amateur radio and the wider world of communications. Whether you're just starting out in ham radio or an experienced operator spinning around the spectrum for those rare and sometimes strange signals, I hope you'll find something to entertain you here. Welcome to Southgate Vibes. Hi to you, and here we go with podcast number 38. As I speak to you, we are still feeling the effects of the biggest geomagnetic storm of cycle 25, which saw the KP interplanetary index go up to 6. It was rated as a G2-class event, so not enormous, but bright auroras were seen spread right across Canada and Alaska. While I suppose we shouldn't moan, the sun looked like it had nodded off in the past few weeks. Have a look at spaceweather.com for more on this. Right, let's start by returning to a story we've been following for some time. As you may know, Ofcom in the UK seems determined to introduce a new clause to a wide range of transmitting licences, requiring licensees to maintain measurements of the electromagnetic fields generated by their antenna systems. The purpose is to ensure that humans cannot be harmed by getting too close to radiating antennas. Well, despite significant protestations from commercial licensees who consider the clause to be unnecessary and overly cautious, Ofcom are ploughing ahead, and the humble average radio ham is being caught up in this too. The UK regulator, Ofcom, has decided to go ahead with their plans to introduce an electromagnetic field strength clause into the amateur radio licence. It will be in place no later than May the 18th, and there will be at least a six-month grace period to comply. Among the consultation respondents quoted in Ofcom's announcement was Raynet UK. Raynet UK, a national voluntary communication service provided by amateur licensees, commented on training aspects. It said that training activities may be no-notice activities to provide the best training experience, but the relatively narrow scope of Ofcom's exemption for emergency situations may limit these activities. Mike White of South Wiltshire Raynet also commented on the impact of Raynet's activities, saying that emergency deployment by Raynet on behalf of Category 1 responders would be more problematic, thus reducing the resilience capabilities and contributions of radio amateurs. Raynet UK also pointed out that Ofcom's proposed definition of the general public is overly restrictive, in that it only accounts for a single licensee or operator responsible for the transmitter. It asked who would be considered as the licensee in scenarios where there are multiple operator stations and whether an off-duty operator in the vicinity would be defined as a member of the general public when they do not have a microphone in their hands. Regarding EMF training, Ofcom said... 
We recognise that appropriate training for amateur licensees provided by the Radio Society of Great Britain can help licensees ensure members of their household are not exposed to electromagnetic fields in breach of the ICN-IRP general public limits. We will encourage the RSGB to update their training to include the most relevant and effective ways in which amateurs can comply with the EMF condition, as identified in our Guidance on EMF Compliance and Enforcement. The RSGB will also be asked to provide training on our additional guidance for radio amateurs, which will be published in a draft version shortly. Such training should not be treated as a one-off tick-box exercise. It is likely that a revised syllabus and textbooks for the RSGB amateur radio exams to incorporate the new EMF requirements will be required at some point later this year. Ofcom acknowledge that their EMF calculator tool will in most cases overestimate the safe separation distance needed for a human from the antenna and in addition it is not suitable for use below 10 MHz. Ofcom say... We expect to publish our final decision in relation to the variation of affected licences no later than the 18th of May 2021. Where we decide to vary licences to include the EMF condition, licensees will then have six months to ensure that their EMF compliance records are in place and up to date, which will be extended to 12 months in relation to equipment which operates at frequencies below 10 MHz. We may decide to extend these deadlines for compliance if there are ongoing travel restrictions as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and will publish an update on our website if we do decide to extend these deadlines. Following the conclusion of the licence variation process, Ofcom also intend to include the EMF licence condition in all new licences in the affected licence classes. The EMF condition will apply immediately to any licences that are issued and include the new EMF condition. While the licence variation process is ongoing, we will still accept new licence applications and issue new licences. You are listening to Southgate Vibes with me, Steve, G4 Hotel Papa Echo. It's all about radio and the wider world of communications. I picked out some of the latest stories from Southgate Amateur Radio News, and you can find a lot more by going to southgatearc.org. Last time, we carried a story about the German National Society, which is embarking on a measurement network designed to show that man-made noise pollution is an increasing threat to the use of the radio spectrum. They were doing this because the German regulator had ceased their own measurements. By contrast, in New Zealand, the regulator has recognised that spectrum pollution from substandard devices is affecting businesses and other users from getting the most benefit out of radio frequencies. Well, I said it last time, and I'll ask it again. I wonder if regulators in countries closer to home will start to recognise that a lack of regulation and enforcement is increasingly damaging the fabric of the spectrum. New Zealand's regulator, Radio Spectrum Management, the RSM, says that the RF spectrum has become an important economic resource, but its usefulness is diminished by pollution. The regulator has produced a compliance guide to give radio spectrum users and suppliers of electrical and radio products information about compliance requirements, compliance audits and enforcement. 
Radio Spectrum Management supports the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment objective to grow New Zealand for all by making sure that the radio spectrum is clean and by also maximising its use. Ensuring that licensing and product compliance requirements are met is crucial to achieving this objective. The compliance guide can be viewed at www.rsm.govt.nz. Just navigate to the publications section. The New Zealand regulator has also produced an information leaflet regarding unrestricted two-way radios. The leaflet can be downloaded on the Radio Spectrum Management website under Products and Equipment You Can't Use in New Zealand. This is part of an ongoing campaign to stop people from using prohibited equipment, in particular unrestricted two-way radios. Well, here's an interesting item now from two pioneering French radio amateurs with a nautical bent. Did you catch this beacon as it slowly moved across the sea? After 74 days at sea and over 2,900 nautical miles of solo rowing, Guidek Sudé arrived at the Caribbean island of St. Barthélemy. He set off from the Canary Islands and eventually arrived on February the 26th. On board, there was an experimental WSPR beacon of less than one watt, operating at 10 megahertz, and the antenna was a shortened diamond mobile whip. The system design by Anthony Lacren, Foxtrot 4 Golf Oscar Hotel and Maurice Eugène, Foxtrot 6 Charlie India Uniform, worked wonderfully throughout the crossing, despite two capsizes, with antenna and beacon equipment being submerged for several minutes. The designers say it's planned to undertake this exercise again, this time on a voyage from Cape Cod in the USA to Brest in Brittany, France. You're listening to Southgate Vibes with me, Steve, G4 Hotel Papa Echo. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a comment or a question, pop us over an email. Our address is vibes at southgatearc.org. That's vibes at southgatearc.org. You never know, we might feature your message in a future edition. Despite being an electronic engineer by qualification, I'm not a very skilled constructor of equipment, and I marvel at those that are. But why not make it even more challenging by constructing transmitters from individual components you've also made for yourself, following the techniques of early radio enthusiasts? Back in the 1920s, when electronic breadboarding often used a real wooden breadboard swiped from the kitchen in the dark of night, a limited supply of commercial electronic components inspired ham radio hobbyists to roll their own capacitors, inductors, switches and whatever else was needed to build a transmitter. Today, Andy Flowers, callsign Kilo Zero Sierra Mike, recreates early transmitters using the same techniques and components that were used back in the day, and he uses the transmitters on air. And he shows how it's done in a video on the Antique Wireless Museum YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and type in Antique Wireless Museum Kilo Zero Sierra Mike. Well, that's it for this time. 
You've been listening to Southgate Vibes, stories about amateur radio and the world of communications from Southgate Amateur Radio News. You can find these stories and many more daily reports at our website, southgatearc.org. Don't forget, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch by sending an email to vibes at southgatearc.org. So until next time, this is Steve Richards, G4 Hotel Papa Echo, signing off and wishing you best 7-3.